We are into part five of our series through the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And chapter one has set up Jesus Christ the Son as prophet, the last word of God. He set him up as prophet and priest who reconciles men and women to God and king. Lord of all, exalted at the right hand of the Father. So that's the threefold office of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. It is also said that he is the creator of all things. He is the heir of all things, as in all things exist for him. That he is fully God, and as well as this, that he is the upholder of all things. And then it went into what many of us... um, if you've read Hebrews, have just been a little bit weirded out by, which is the fact that they're talking about Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And last week we uh, looked at uh, verses 4 through to 14 of chapter 1, and we saw that perhaps the original audience of this letter to the Hebrews had been influenced by some teaching uh, by a group called the Qumran community, Uh, some would call them the Essenes, Uh, some would call them the Dead Sea sect, and they had an understanding that all of history was going towards the kingdom for Israel, and they viewed the end times as having a, a prophet, a kingly messiah, underneath a priestly messiah, and as well as that, everything was overseen by the archangel Michael. So the most important person in the kingdom apart from God would have been an angel. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's saying, no, Christ is prophet, priest, and king all together, and he is greater than the angels. And we'll see exactly how this is applied as we read the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 2. So turn with me. This is the Word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received the just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of God. If chapter 1 has set up the superiority of Jesus Christ, chapter 2 begins to make application. Maybe you've heard this, it's a little bit cringeworthy, but any time you see in Scripture the word therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, you must ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? And that is our link back to chapter 1. Jesus Christ is supreme over all things, and he's supreme over the angels. Therefore, let me apply this for us. So this is now application. 
This doctrine, these important truths about who Jesus Christ is, must be applied. They have meaning for our worship. They have meaning for our salvation. They have practical application to us as the people of God. And so there are four things in here. There are four clauses. One relating to the law and to angels, and they escalate. And one relating to the gospel and not neglecting it, and they escalate. We will see those together. The first point is, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's your application. Pay attention. Sure, those of you with kids, you say that often. Pay attention. Listen. And that's what he's saying. Pay attention. And this, this term here, to drift away, it's used in, in Greek as a, as a kind of nautical term in, in the sea, that a shift would drift off course and miss its destination. And so he's saying, we must listen lest we drift away, we drift off course from where we're supposed to be going. It becomes clear that these, these people that the writer of Hebrews is, is uh, addressing had had their interest in Christianity slacken. It had weakened. It had once grasped their full attention, and now it was weakening. I want us to see also, he says, we must. To what we have heard. He is writing from outside their community, but he is including himself with them. He's saying, we all must pay attention. And this application begins to become clear to us. Because Jesus Christ is greater than the angels, the revelation that comes from him must be received with the highest seriousness. Angels, as we know, and we see this every Christmas in nativity scenes and Angels are messengers from God. If Jesus is greater than them, his message is even more important. It is of the highest importance. You cannot appeal to a a higher messenger. And so what is that which has been heard? What is this message that the people must pay attention to? We will see it more, but it is the, the gospel. We must pay great attention to the gospel, lest we drift away from the gospel. As I have wrestled with this text this week, and it has wrestled with me, I, I, I have grasped in, in my own heart, even as this church, we want to be a gospel-centered church. If you look on our values, that is the first value there, gospel-centered And yet, how easy is it to drift away from that serious message of Christ? The gospel, Sam Storm says, I love this definition, the gospel is the good news of what God has accomplished in the person of his Son, in his life, his death, his resurrection, to secure the forgiveness of sins of all, who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
it goes on to say, in other words, the gospel is something that God has accomplished. It is not something that we do. It is something that we respond to. Our faith is not the gospel. Our repentance is not the gospel. They are the effect of the gospel. End quote. This gospel is the most important news we've ever heard. And each one of us here imbibes hundreds of stupid messages each day from Facebook and TVs and newspapers and, and Instagram and whatever it is. I do it too. But this is the one thing that we must pay attention to. And there's a challenge for us in this day and age. We're so used to getting bombarded with information that nothing really matters anymore. This person had a baby. This Trump solved North Korea. This happened. This happened. You know, and you just you've got twenty different things in your mind at once, and you're not paying attention to them. Through all of that, the gospel must be number one overall, never forgotten. Morning, evening, day by day. The gospel is a message we're told here of salvation. We must pay attention to it. Hebrews chapter 1 begins by saying that God has spoken through His Son in these last days. Acts chapter 2, Joel chapter 2 tells us that we are in the last days. That doesn't mean Christ comes tomorrow, but what it means is this is the last age. There's nothing left in the saving plan of God to happen. Christ has come. These are the last days. Christ will come again. Then it's over. We must listen. And the truth needs to be understood. It needs to be heard. In Hebrews chapter 6, we're told that Christ is a sure and steady anchor of our soul. You think about it? The shift is drifting off course because of neglecting the gospel. Christ is to be our anchor who holds us firmly in, on course. It is so easy. It is so easy. It it. it, it gives me fear. It is so easy to drift from the gospel. D.A. Carson says that the gospel can be lost in a church and a community in three or four stages. The first generation believes and accepts the gospel. The second generation in the second stage They assume the gospel, and they focus not on the gospel message, but on the effects of the gospel. We should do this, we should do that. As a result of the gospel, we must do this. But they focus on the effects, and they miss the message itself. And then the third generation confuses it. Because they start thinking the gospel is loving neighbor. The gospel is social justice. The gospel is is, is worship. The gospel is any of those things. The gospel is repentance even. And they drift from the purity of the gospel. They confuse it and then they lose it. We must believe individually 
and corporately as a body that these things are possible. The moment we start saying we'll never lose the gospel, we'll never drift from it, we're so gospel-centered, we'll keep going, you set ourselves up for failure because we are prideful. And in our pride, we take our eyes off the gospel. It is so easy to drift. One of the ways we drift Notice he doesn't say outright reject the gospel. Pay attention to what you've heard, lest you outright reject the gospel. He doesn't say that. For most of us, the danger is not in rejecting the gospel wholesale. It's just in drifting from it a little bit. The greatest lies are the ones that are closest to the truth. Some of the ways. Some of the ways that we can drift can think that the gospel is a a one-time message that we respond to. We pray a prayer, and then we are saved, and then we're done. That's a a classic way in many churches. Rather than an ongoing relationship and trust with Christ, we just view it as a one-time thing. Jesus, I did that. I'm good. So many funerals, that thinking just bubbles up person lives a life of complete unholiness, complete rejection of Christ, but they said, oh, I was there one day when he prayed that prayer, he saved, he's going to heaven. Blasphemy. Another one. We focus on entertainment. Do you know that it is so tempting to church leadership to have a big church? Now, I'm not of the opinion that a small church is necessarily a healthy church. That's not, that's not the case. There's no glorying in your smallness, okay? But it is very easy to take the gospel, just put it aside, just have a little bit of it influencing everything, and entertain goats rather than feeding sheep. This is the pulpit. We preach the word of God, not simply my own opinions. I don't tell, I'm not here to tell stories from them. My stories are not that good. It is for the proclamation of the word of God. That's what it exists for. The gospel is to be the glue that binds us together, not entertainment. And I say this often, especially to students. I am a firm believer that you are far better at entertaining yourself than I am. tremendously uncool. You entertain yourself the way you want according to within the commands of God. Do that. Is it good to have fun with your church family? Yes! But entertainment is part of recreation, something that you decide what you want to do. We're not going to bind a church together based on entertainment. Another way we can drift from the gospel is by compromising the gospel, by, by sanding the rough edges off it. Some of the effects of the gospel right now are very, very controversial. The Christian sexual ethic doesn't fit very well in this culture right now, does it? 
But more than that, and I say this often, far more offensive than the Christian sexual ethic is our belief that Christ is the only way of salvation and that everyone must humble themselves, repent of their sins and trust in him and trust nothing in their goodness. That is truly offensive. It was offensive 2,000 years ago. It was offensive in the Middle Ages. It's offensive now. There's always a danger to compromise that. We can lose it. Another way we can drift from the gospel, antinomianism, against the law. A belief that we say things like, I'm a big sinner, but it's cool, I'm forgiven. And we just... A presumption of God's forgiveness and a neglect of the fact that he does call us to love him and love neighbors ourselves. Not simply say, I'm a Christian and I can go live however I want. I've heard stories of people that claimed Christ and then became even worse sinners. It had no effect on their holiness. Neglecting the law. We cannot earn our salvation, but God still calls us to seek to live a holy life in accordance with his laws. And when we fail, we seek his forgiveness. That's how it works. Another one. There's, there's less and less of them, but a cultural Christianity. Non-practicing Christian. What is that? That is a, a drifting from the gospel. The other thing that we must be incredibly careful of is just making it simply that we get our doctrine right in this church, but we miss the big picture, which is salvation and worship of God. We look down our noses at everyone else because they're not as pure as us, and we miss the weightier things such as love. That is a danger. That is a real danger for us. And one of, and I remain convinced of this now, one of the greatest ways that we can drift from the gospel, the message that we have heard, is we forget that this is a matter of life and death. You understand that? It is. It is. This is not addition to our lives. This is not something light and fluffy. It is a matter of life and death. And so we must be careful of drifting away from this message. Let's go to verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What was the message received from angels? In Exodus chapter 19 and 20 with the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, it says nothing about angels being involved. However, in Deuteronomy 33, Moses says, God came with 10,000 of his holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand to give the law. So Moses says that when God gave him the Ten Commandments, he came with 10,000 angels with him on Mount Sinai. And only Moses saw this. 
In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, Stephen, as he is being martyred, the first Christian martyr, he cries out and he says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him, at Moses, at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And then in verse 53 of Acts 7, he says, You, he's talking to the Jews, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So that's interesting. Who gave the law to Moses? God through angels. Do we start to see why the supremacy of Christ matters? We start to see why the supremacy of Christ matters? He says here that there are transgressions, that is breaking what God has commanded. And there is disobedience, that is not listening to what God has commanded. Both of these things that the people of Israel did are violations of God's divine will. And it says they brought just retribution. They brought punishment. He is setting the stage for saying that this message of the law that brought, that angels brought carried with it blessings and curses. The blessing of the law was that if the nation of Israel kept the law, they could dwell and live in the promised land. And the curse of the law was that if they did not listen and they disobeyed, they would be exiled. And of course, that's what happened. They did not keep God's law, and therefore they were exiled from the land. The blessings and curses of the gospel message are greater than the blessings and curses of the moral law because the person who gave them to the people of God is greater. That's what he's saying. The blessing of obeying the gospel is eternity with God dwelling in the new creation. Full salvation. And the curse of the gospel, rejecting the gospel, As Isaiah 66 says, eternity in hell. The blessing and curses are magnified and raised. The gospel is greater than the law. And so he says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape? We have received a greater revelation. The people that live on this side of the cross of Christ in history have received a greater revelation than the people of Israel did on Mount Sinai. In the gospel message, Jesus takes upon himself the curse. It becomes a curse for us, Paul says in Galatians 3. Following the scriptures from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ was cursed in our place. Our sin was placed upon Christ on the cross. His righteous life is attributed to us. We receive it by faith. We believe it. 
in the gospel. The gospel message is a message of salvation. Not something that we do, but something that he does. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is an immense message. Salvation is not earned, it is received because of what Christ has done. And therefore, the gospel message is a a message of salvation. It is a message of reconciliation. We go from being enemies of God to friends of God. It is a message of adoption. We go from being slaves to sin and brought into the household of God as his children. You know, people keep saying this like, we're all children of God. No, we are not. Paul tells us in Romans, we become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a message of justification. By faith in Christ, we are freed from the penalty of sin. God declares us to be righteous in his sight. It is a message of sanctification. God frees us by his Holy Spirit from the progressive power of sin in our life so that we begin to be able to obey the law more and more, not to justify us, but to live a righteous life. And it is a message of glorification. That upon our death, because Christ rose from the grave, we too will receive a glorified, sinless body, free finally from the presence of sin. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. This is a salvation that comes to us in three tenses. We are saved as a Christian by faith in Christ. We are saved. We are being saved right now. And we will be saved finally. John Calvin says we must... We must not neglect salvation because God wishes his gifts to be valued at their proper worth. And that's why Jesus calls salvation, the the kingdom of God, the pearl of great price. Worth selling everything we have just to have it. We must value these things at their proper worth. There's a catastrophic consequence of ignoring this catastrophic consequence. There's no escape. Do we understand that? It says in Hebrews 1, this is the final word of God. There is no escape if we neglect the gospel. Some of us have been brought up with this ignorant opinion that one day when we die we'll get a second chance. No. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. What a foolish, silly thing to invent because we've not, because of neglecting this message to not drift away from the gospel. There's no second chances. I wish there were, but they're not. 
Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And hear these words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Don't neglect this message. Pay attention. The law of God was proven, and the, the last point here is that the gospel is proven. The law was proven. The message delivered by angels was proven because all sins against the law were punished. Israel were exiled from the land. It's proven. It is the divine message. God carried out the blessings and curses of the law. He says he has also proven the gospel. Let's read again from second half of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The law was proven. The gospel was proven. It was proven because it came from Christ. It came from the mouth of Jesus Christ. It was declared at first by our Lord. It was attested to by those who heard, which are the apostles and people in the early church. It was borne witness by signs and wonders. All the, the miracles, all these casting out of demons, or these healings, and all these things that happened in the early church, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, signs, tongues, prophecies, all these things bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel message. Without them, people would not have believed them. And perhaps the greatest miracle that we have seen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, witnessed by 500 people. These all show the truthfulness of this message. Now perhaps the original hearers in Hebrews might have said, well, the law was given to Moses by angels. The gospel simply came from these men, these ordinary-looking disciples of Jesus Christ, fishermen and tax collectors and terrorists, obviously the law is greater. We should just return to that. The temple and those sacrifices, we need to go back to that. And the answer here is no. It came through Christ. It came through his mouth. He was a preacher of the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel. There is no greater mouthpiece for the message of salvation. You must believe it. I want to make two points of application. The first one 
the first one. I've become more and more convinced of this over time. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we are told at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, is love. Right? 1 Corinthians 13 is that passage that always gets read out at weddings. Right? That wonderful thing, passage about love. True love is like this. Love is patient and kind. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples that all men will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And as we as a church head into we in a new year, but we head into a new building. As we head into this next phase, we need to realize that one of the most powerful apologetics for the gospel is a community of people who believe this so much that it shapes their lives that they're willing to give up their brunch time on Sunday morning or their sleep in and worship this God, and this worshiping community of people who love and care for one another and bear one another's burdens is perhaps the most powerful apologetic we can present to the watching world. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is just something truly divine. We are not to be a church of people that are just bound together by mutual interests. We're not going to be bound together by uh, liking of certain games or beer and craft craft beer, beards, whatever, like certain kinds of fashion, certain likes and certain music. That's not ultimately the thing that is to hold the people together. It is a powerful picture that shows the truthfulness of the message when people are willing to devote their lives and they have this this new family that though they annoy one another, they still love each other. They put up with one another. That is divine. That is a powerful apologetic for the truth of the gospel. It was great to see some of that last night. It was a fellowship dinner. It's great to see worshiping community bound together by the gospel demonstrates the excellencies of Christ and points to the truthfulness of this message. And secondly, secondly, what's our application of Hebrews 2? Let's start here. What's our application? Don't drift from the gospel. Don't neglect the truth of what Christ has done. Don't neglect the greater salvation because there is no help and no hope anywhere else. The proclamation of the gospel that happens here every single Sunday, and we struggle to understand this sometimes, it is a message of blessing because it shows salvation in Christ, but it is also a message of cursing. It is a judicial activity to hear the gospel because it leaves us without excuse. 
Don't neglect it. Believe it, and you shall be saved. Reject it, and there is no hope for you. It separates, and therefore we must pay heed. Let us not drift from the gospel and neglect so great a salvation. Let's pray together.